Praise God for that time of uh, worship and praise God for the truths that we got to sing about. The Lord is our salvation. Praise God. If you would open your Bibles, please, to Galatians chapter 4. While you're turning there, I want to... I don't really want to, but I feel like I need to address uh, some of the goings-on this week, particularly that uh, early in the week there was a school shooting in Tennessee where a Christian school was targeted and uh, six Christians were murdered. And uh, so we want to be in prayer uh, clearly for the families that were connected with that, those who lost loved ones. Uh, those who were impacted, those who were connected with that school. And as I understand it, the, uh, the teachers and the administration and everyone involved in the school uh, did a stellar job in protecting their children, which in that situation is their life's calling. As well, uh, from what I have seen, uh, it seems like the police did an excellent job as well. And so praise God for those things. But what an awful, awful circumstance. What an awful reality that, uh, that such things go on. And so we want to um, recognize that uh, we live in, in times that are uncertain in many ways. And uh, we don't recognize perhaps all of the uncertainty uh, that goes on in our day. But when we see situations like that uh, appear, we recognize that there are those who hate Christianity, hate Christians because they hate Christ. That's, the, that's, that's a reality. That's always been a reality. That's always been a reality. And uh, we see it on um, our world scene right now. And so we want to spend some time praying. Uh, I, I should have done this earlier, but I don't want to forget uh, to be praying for those families and those connected. And of course, the fear that, uh, that would arise um, for uh, Christians and for schools in general as a result of such a thing. Um, so we want to be in prayer. We don't want to be afraid. We are not afraid. Uh, we, uh, we know the sovereign and living God, and so we're not afraid. Uh, but we want to be in prayer, and we want to be wise, and we want to be compassionate for those who have lost dear ones. And um, there are more circumstances that we could talk about, other situations that have gone on, but, but uh, there, there has become, uh, in our culture, in our day and age, a lack of value of human life, a devaluing of human life um, that, that is uh, sobering. And so I want to uh, pray for us. I'm going to do things a, a little bit out of order today from what I would normally do, but if you would um, go to the Lord with me in prayer before we even begin. Father, we join together at this time recognizing that we live in uncertain times. We live in a world and a, a nation where human life which is precious and you have created is devalued is uh, 
of no value whatsoever in many contexts. It's denied, it's threatened at every turn. We live in a culture that would encourage young people to take their own lives. We live in a culture that would, that would encourage uh, older people uh, or those going through difficulty to, to find a way to, uh, to take their own life, even with medical assistance. We live in a culture where the unborn, who ought to be in the safest place in the course of their entire lives in their mother's womb, and yet they uh, are greatly in danger in that uh, what ought to be a haven. We live in a culture where it's considered acceptable by some people to take up arms and go kill innocents, including children, to break into schools and to uh, commit murder. Or, in our own context, we live in a culture where some think it's fine to fake all of that, make a phone call and and, uh, and see what the response times or whatever. I don't know what motivations were, but call as if there's a shooter at school, there's an active shooter situation, and so everyone is, is scared to death. And it's supposed to be funny, or it's used for some other nefarious purpose. We live in a time where life, which is precious, that you have created, is not precious to us. Father, we, if we were to ponder those things only, if we were to end our meditation and our prayer there, we would have no hope. But we bring these concerns that are grave to you, the author of life, the one who is God Almighty, sovereign over all things, who is completely able, his arm is not too short, He has the power to protect His people, to bring peace where there is no peace. He has power uh, to work in uh, circumstances of great turmoil in Turkey with the the catastrophe that has gone on there with earthquakes and the destruction that's come from that. You have all power. And so we bring these things to you because we are weak and we are small, we are finite, and we have limited creativity and limited understanding and even limited imagination. And we come to you who can do all things. And we bring these requests. requests. We pray that you would be at work. Pray that you would bring peace in these situations. Pray that you would bring reason where there is irrationality. Bring sanity where there is insanity. Bring hope in Christ where there is hopelessness. Bring life where there is a love of death. So, Father, we ask that you would work, that you would move. These things are too big for us. But they are not too big for you. And so, Father, as we turn to your word and we read in this passage about uh, struggles between peoples and struggles between Uh, brothers and struggles between worldviews, we pray, Father, that you would give us eyes to see what you have for us in this passage. We pray that even though the world is chaotic in so many ways, so many countless frightening ways, we know that your word is truth.
So may we find hope and help for our lives and for our situations, as varied as they may be, as scary as they may be, as sad as they may be, from what you have for us in your word today. So we ask that you would work in Jesus' name. Amen. We are in Galatians chapter 4. That's different than Genesis. I am aware of that. And, uh, but the passage that uh, we have been working through in Genesis is brought up in this context in Galatians chapter 4. And so I thought it appropriate for us, uh, particularly this time of year, this won't be any kind of traditional um, uh, Palm Sunday service or, or sermon or anything like that, but I want us to read Paul's reflections on the story of Hagar and Sarah. And so we're in Galatians chapter 4, and I'm going to start reading in verse 21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. This passage is an odd one. It's odd for a few different reasons. And in order to make sense of it, what we need to do is think back through what's going on in Galatia, what they were dealing with. Paul had gone through and he had, he had planted a church there. There had been, there had been great growth and, and, uh, and benefit. And, and you saw many who were coming to Christ and, and particularly Gentiles who were coming to Christ. And then after Paul left, some bad news came. That was that some who were Jewish were sneaking in, and not just were they Jewish, there are lots of Jewish Christians. Paul himself was a Jewish Christian, but these were called Judaizers, meaning they wanted to take those who were not Jewish and make them Jewish in order to become Christians. 
that in their understanding, what they wanted these Gentiles to do is first get in line with being Jews, and then once you've done that, you've undergone circumcision, you've begun to, begun to observe the Jewish festal calendar and the other things that go with that, you've undertaken dietary restrictions and all that. Once you've become Jewish, then you can step from there into Christianity. And so uh, they were they were pushing this kind of doctrine, and the, the people who were uh, there in Galatia were kind of listening to this. And it seemed kind of good and kind of right to them that maybe this was how God had it. I mean, after all, the Word of God came to the Jews first, and then by means of the Jews to the Gentiles. And so, so, so maybe God would have us all become Jews so that we can become believers. And Paul abhorred that doctrine. In Paul's mind, in Paul's understanding, that was a hellish doctrine, a damning doctrine. And so he's going to argue uh, throughout the book of Galatians that, uh, that it is not the works that you do, it is not works of the law that by any means can make you right with God. And if you understand that, yeah, you need Jesus because He's the Messiah, but you also have to do these things, you've polluted the gospel to such a point that it is no gospel. It is no good news. It is not saving. And if you continue to walk down that direction, that direction leads to damnation. Paul, who who could, could speak strongly at times, speaks especially strongly to the church in Galatia. He forgoes a lot of the niceties, and he gets right to the point. When it came to the gospel, when it came to defending the purity and the truth of the gospel, Paul would pull no punches. He would not let kindness get in the way. He needed to say this to defend the most important truth that has ever been, the gospel itself. And so Paul has gone through and he's argued various ways. He showed uh, from here and from there and, and, uh, and made some different arguments. And then we come to uh, chapter 4 and verse 21. And uh, he, he, he begins to talk about Hagar and Sarah, and perhaps in surprising ways, and in bringing this up, particularly to a group of people who uh, were Jewish and were insisting that Gentiles become Jews in order to become Christians, the story of, uh, of Abraham, and what we've been talking about in Genesis, the story of Sarah and of Hagar and, and of Ishmael and of Isaac, and all of that story would have been part and parcel with their message. And so this was a very familiar history. And so he opens up and he says, well, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, you who think that the way to become a Christian is first to become a Jew and then to become a Christian, you come to Christ by means of the law, by means of obedience to these, uh, the circumcision and the dietary laws and the other things that are involved. You who want to be under the law, tell me, do you not listen to the law itself? Do you not Listen to the law. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one a slave woman and one by, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. He, he's saying, you who want to follow the law so badly, do, have you read it? <laughs> do you know what it says? Well, let's, let's look at an instance of what it says, and this would have been a very familiar story. Do you remember that Abraham had two sons? 
two primary sons. Now, later on, if you continue on, as we will in the story of Abraham, you find that he has other sons later on. But these two are the primary ones. These two are the ones who are in competition with one another. You've got Ishmael, who was born of Hagar, and then you've got Isaac, who was born of Sarah. And those are the primary two that he's talking about there, the one who is, uh, the one who is born by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. He says, but the, the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. He's explaining here, he's, he's making it clear to us the, the distinction that it wasn't just uh, that, that, that Ishmael was born from Hagar and that was the problem or, or something. He's talking about the distinction between one was born according to the flesh, one was born according to promise. They're, they're very distinct from one another. And of course, we remember the story uh, because we've, we talked about it not long ago, but, but how the promise has been made over and over to Abraham and to Sarah, and it becomes clarified as, as the decades wear on and they're still waiting for the birth of this son. It becomes clarified that, that indeed God is going to give Abraham and Sarah a son. And so when he is born, that child is born by promise. Remember, to parents so old, they shouldn't have been able to become parents. That's the child of promise. Whereas Hagar and the child that she gave birth to, that was, that was by natural means, normal means. I don't think flesh here is referring necessarily to uh, sinful tendencies or something that how Paul often uses or the New Testament often uses flesh. I think what he's talking about there is this is the natural, normal way. It was them accomplishing by their own means the things that they could do with Abraham uh, being given Hagar by Sarah and thus giving birth to Ishmael. And so we come to understand that one was born according to the flesh and the other one was born only by promise because it wasn't possible any other way for a man who's a hundred and a woman who's ninety to have a child. So he brings this up. This is a very well-known story. It's a it's well-known history and, and uh, the scholars even even uh, wonder and, and are, are, are pretty sure that actually the Judaizers themselves would have brought up this story as, uh, as kind of an apologetic for why they believed what they believed. That, that see you have you have Isaac on the scene, and, and Isaac is the one who's born. And by the way, he's, he's, he's the child of promise, and he's the one who's circumcised, and he's the one who, uh, from whom subsequent generations of God's people come. And so you need to be identified with Isaac. And so, of course, that means uh, initially circumcision. And that means later on taking on the law, etc. It seems like they argued that direction, and Paul takes up the same passage. But we're going to see uh, that same passage reinterpreted in light of Christ. And so we see in verse 24... Paul is going to take a different route. Referring to the same passage, he's going to take a different route. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. Now, I'll pause there. I'll come back and, and continue reading. But what's an allegory? Allegory is, uh, is not uh, something that we often talk about. It's not something that, uh, it's not a method of interpreting Scripture we really follow or anything like that. But Paul is saying in this situation this story that you're familiar with may be interpreted allegorically. So what, what is an allegory? Well, probably the, the most famous allegory uh, in the world would be Pilgrim's Progress. Pilgrim's Progress, uh, written by John Bunyan in 1678, uh, largely or maybe entirely while he was in jail. Uh, it's been translated into like 200 languages. It's never been out of print in all that time. 
It, it may be the second most sold book in the whole world after the Bible itself. And it's a, it's a story. You've read Pilgrim's Progress, and if you've not read it, I recommend you take up and read because it's, it's the story of someone who is not a believer but begins to hear uh, things about, about God. And, and, it, and it's this allegory pictured by this, you know, he's, he's, got a, he's got a big burden on his back and he's got to carry it. Well, that symbolizes his sin and his guilt that he has. And you've got, he meets this person who's named Mr. So-and-so. And it's all symbolic, right? It's, it's, it's presenting for us a spiritual truth and actually many spiritual truths throughout the course of the story, but by means of pictures, by means of things that didn't actually happen, Bunyan isn't trying to write actual literal history by any means. He's just telling a story. He's using symbolic, uh, these symbolic situations and people to, uh, to make a, a spiritual point. Well, that's extra biblical. What about in the Bible? Do we have any allegories? Well, when, when Nathan the prophet approached David after David had gone in to Bathsheba, remember what Nathan said? Nathan shows up and he says, there once was a man, and he tells this parable. And it's about sheep, and it's about this one little ewe lamb, and it's about flocks, and it was, a, it was, a par- it was a, like a parable. It was an allegory. It was, it was truths being told in a pictorial fashion to communicate spiritual truths that were real and that drove home with David, didn't they? Because David got the point. He said, I would punish that man. This is what I would do. And Nathan Nathan said, that's you, David. You're the guy. Right? And so we see allegory in Scripture. Uh, It it, it occurs occasionally in in parable is like uh, allegory as well. But what is is Paul saying here? Is he saying, uh, now this may be interpreted allegorically, is he saying these things never happened? Like like the story of of Christian and, and, you know, Vanity Fair? In, in, in Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, that, that never really happened. That's not intended to be a story. Is, is Paul saying, no, this, this is just figurative language? No, he's, he's looking at actual historical events that Paul believes are actually historical, and he's saying there's something we can learn from these historical events, that this historical event will be useful in teaching some truths. He's saying it can be interpreted allegorically. These women, he continues in verse 24, are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. So right off the bat, you've got Paul going a different direction probably than the Judaizers would have gone. Because they would have said, yes, there were two, and one was born into slavery, and, and one was born uh, by promise, and of course that child of promise is Isaac, and of course that would be represented by Mount Sinai, and that of course, therein lies freedom. That, that was the argument that they were making. You want to come to Christ? You come by means of Mount Sinai. You come by means of the law in order to become a Christian, and Paul turns it around entirely and says, oh no. He says, these women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai. And the Judaizers are cheering, bearing children, and they're cheering because they are those children. He says, for slavery. The path you have followed leads to slavery. You want to add something to Christ in order to be saved. That's not super-Christianity. That's not better-Christianity. That is sub-Christianity. That is slavery, to add something to Christ in order to be saved. He says, one is from Mount Sinai, 
bearing children for slavery, and she is Hagar. And you could just see the, the bitterness in the, in, the, in, the, in the face of the Judaizers who, who just love this story because they are children of Isaac. They are children of Sarah. They are children of promise. And he tells the story, and he says, actually, no, you're, you're in slavery. Um, your mother is Hagar. You've misunderstood which side of the picture you're on. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. So he's contrasting. He's, he's contrasting him and them. He's contrasting the Christians in Galatia with those Judaizers who would come and would spoil the gospel. He's saying these are two covenants. One covenant is this, this the old covenant. It's connected with Sinai. And ultimately, by itself, it leads to slavery. And so when you want to put yourself under that old covenant, you end up in slavery. The children of Hagar. But there is a new covenant. There is a different covenant. And Paul gives some parallels here. He's going to talk about two different women. He's going to talk about two different sons. He's going to talk about two different covenants, though he doesn't always name them uh, consistently. He, he, he's, he's contrasting. He's going to talk about two Jerusalems. He's contrasting these two. So he's using this story to tell the truth of the theology of his gospel that he is teaching. He says in verse 25, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she's in slavery with her children. Hagar is Mount Sinai and corresponds to the present Jerusalem. The representatives of Jerusalem were the Judaizers. And he's saying those representatives are in slavery with their Jerusalem. But Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother. There is a contrast between these two. There is a Jerusalem that results in slavery for herself and for all of her children. And she corresponds with Mount Sinai. She corresponds with Hagar. She corresponds with the Old Covenant that leads to this slavery. But there is another Jerusalem, he says in verse 26. There is another Jerusalem than this one that exists. I like how it's put in the Greek. There's the now Jerusalem and there's the Jerusalem above. The now Jerusalem, he's saying, leads to this slavery, and that's what they represent. That's what they're trying to get you to buy into. But there is a Jerusalem that is above, and it is free. It's not enslaved. It's free, and she is our mother, says Paul, the Jewish apostle to the Gentile world. Paul's saying, I don't identify. I don't find my, the, my, my identity, the definition of who I am in this now Jerusalem. Therein lies slavery. My identity comes from the Jerusalem above. And there's freedom. And so he's reinterpreting these truths. He's talking about the world that these Judaizers were trying to introduce these Gentiles to. He's been pointing out for us here the, the contrast between these two covenants, and he doesn't consistently spell them out, but but when he's talking about the Old Covenant, he's talking about Sinai. He's primarily referring to the law, the covenant that is given based upon the law. And the law uh, contained three basic elements. 
The first basic element of the law was the moral law. It was, it was wrong, and it was declared to be wrong to steal in the Ten Commandments. It is still wrong to steal. The moral law of God, which has to do with how we relate to God, how we relate to one another, is still in effect. It's just as in effect for us as it was for them. He's not talking about doing away with that moral law. There's a second aspect of the law. It's the, the civil aspects of the law that governed how this nation of Israel, remember the law was given before they were about to go into the land, they were going to set up a nation. He's saying, when you set up the nation, here's your constitution. Here's the law of what your nation is supposed to do in relation to one another as a nation and in relation to outside nations. It's the civil law. Well, that civil law doesn't pertain to us because we don't live in that time and in that political entity. And so that law has been done away as well, though, of course, if you look at our law and, and compare that to, like, our U.S. law, the Constitution, and compare that to the, the civil law in the Old Testament, you'll see that we've learned a lot. We've done a lot of things as we should do in those ways. But it's, it's not those two ways that he's primarily talking about. He's talking primarily about the third aspect of the Mosaic Law, which is the ceremonial law. That's the part that has to do with circumcision, and if you've read Galatians, you know that circumcision is a big deal. That's the part that has to do with dietary laws. If you've read that, you remember the conflict between Paul and Peter, where Paul was willing to go toe-to-toe with Peter because Peter stood condemned because Peter was insisting upon the dietary law. Or rather, he was submitting to others who were insisting upon keeping the dietary law. That's the, the ceremonial laws. And, and Paul is saying those ceremonial laws... You try to tack them onto the gospel, you have stolen the freedom and you've given slavery when you insist on those. Those, those ceremonial laws were given for the purpose of pointing to Christ. They, 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 were, they were to indicate what He uh, was coming to do, what He was going to fulfill, the sacrifices He was going to make and what that was going to mean, etc., they were types and they were shadows of the things to come. Well, Jesus comes on the scene. He's the reality. Why do you need a type pointing to a reality? Why do you need a shadow when you've got him standing there? And so Paul is saying that those types and shadows are done away with. They lead to slavery. That, those, things are, those things are found under the old covenant, but we live in a new covenant. We live in a different time. Jesus has instituted the new covenant. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper here in just a couple of minutes where Jesus says, this is the new covenant in my blood. That was the old covenant. Here's something new. That's where Jesus comes on the scene and he's the one who, who obeys in our place. We have not obeyed and he does obey, fulfilling all of those requirements. Not just the, the, the ceremonial and not just even the civil and living the way he did, but, but, but but the moral law, fulfilling all of the law in himself, always obedient. So he's got that record of perfection. And then he goes to the place of death, the place of punishment for sin, to stand in our spot, to take our number, as it were, to pay that penalty for us. And that penalty is executed in him. And he says that everyone who, who looks on him in faith finds their sin forgiven finds that his righteousness is credited to them so that they have right standing before God. They, they, they get to be God's children. They had never 
been before. They had stood at enmity with God when they uh, were stuck in their own deeds, their own actions. But Jesus comes on the scene and he says, you will never obey God. I will do so in your place. And you don't want to pay the penalty for your sin. It would take you all eternity and you would never finish. I will pay that penalty for you. And if you will put your faith in me, Jesus says, I will give you the benefits of that. And that's that new covenant where Jesus has accomplished it and he gives it to us by faith. And he's not even done then. He reaches right down into our heart and he takes our heart of stone out. and He gives us a heart of flesh that's responsive to God. He places his very spirit right within us. This is a new covenant. You see how this is a covenant of freedom as opposed to the covenant of bondage? And these Judaizers were bringing in this covenant of bondage, wanting to set the people back under it. Verse 27, For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now, if that confuses you in reading through it, you're with me, okay? I encourage you to go back and read from Isaiah 50 to about Isaiah 55. And in that section of Isaiah, that's the, that's the, that's the part of Isaiah that's talking about restoration, talking about rebuilding. Remember the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, not exclusively, but, but are a lot of doom and gloom. Judgment is coming. Judgment's coming. And then at, at chapter 40, it seems to switch gears, and you have comfort given now that there's expectation, there's hope. Well, in the history of what's uh, going on, the, there was going to be uh, this judgment. God was, God was telling his people through the prophet Isaiah there was going to be judgment coming upon them, and particularly on, on Jerusalem as representing the people. And there was going to come a time when the people would be taken out of Jerusalem, and it would be barren. It would be like a wasteland. Now, remember, under, under the days of Solomon, there was gold everywhere. Silver was worthless because they had so much money. Things were wonderful. The population was growing. Everyone was coming there. It was, it was beautiful. It was wonderful. It was opulent. There was great, great things. But there's going to come a time in the future when, when Jerusalem will be like, I was, I was going to say Hazen, but I don't want to offend people from Hazen, but like Hazen, right? Sort of an, a wide-ish spot in the road, right? I mean, Jerusalem was abandoned. And Isaiah is looking and he's saying, he's speaking to that Jerusalem who's abandoned. And he's saying, you, Jerusalem, who is abandoned in that context, rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. There is no hope for Jerusalem. In that context, when the people have been deported, when there's been judgment brought upon the land, there is no hope. But rejoice, cry aloud, break forth in song, for the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of the abundant one. Back in Solomon's day when things were great, no, it's going to be far greater. Solomon's day... And all the subsequent kings, even though they had money and power and all this influence at different times, ended up driving right into the dirt. There was judgment that, that was rendered upon them. And God is looking at this desolate city and he's saying, you think there is no hope, but I'm going to do a work where I am going to bring a new Jerusalem 
as it were, where I am going to bring abundance. I'm going to bring more people, more abundance than ever Solomon's day had. He's talking about how God is going to rebuild His people. And he's using that here as an example. He calls up that verse to to point out the fact that these Judaizers were going back to the very thing that led to the judgment in Jerusalem. He's saying, I'm preaching to you something new. I'm talking to you about the rebuilding and the restoration that God Himself will do in this new covenant where there will be a population that you can't imagine. This is significant for everyone. He begins kind of his own application section there in in verse 28. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. You, Christians, you Christians who are being influenced by these Judaizers, you are children of promise. You're Isaac in the story. They think they're Isaac. They're wrong. They are Ishmael. You, Christian who have believed the promise of God and thus you've entered into the family. You who are a child of promise, you are Isaac. You are the child of promise in this story. And that was counterintuitive to them. That was counterintuitive, particularly to the Judaizers. They wouldn't have preached that. But he's contrasting those who would enter in, those who would would become God's children, as it were, those who would enter into this relationship based upon works of the flesh, things to do, things that we accomplish, a list of things that I need to work my way through, a ladder I need to climb, the right, uh, the right detours I need to go through, or, or the things I need to do, the, the deeds of the flesh. He says, that's the Judaizers. That road leads to slavery. That road leads to damnation. He said, but not you Christians. You Christians are the ones who have been brought into favor with God by believing His promise. Not by believing His promise plus. The plus is damning. By believing His promise. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. What's the relationship between these two? Well, he goes on and he points out something we talked about recently, but just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. There's still this persecution. You still have the the, the Judaizers who were persecuting those who wouldn't go along with their story. You have those who were non-believing Jews who were persecuting Christians. The primary persecution of Christians throughout the book of Acts comes from Jews. And he's saying that's because they are like Ishmael. But you, the ones who have been born by promise, or as he puts it in verse, in verse 29, you're born according to the Spirit, are the ones who receive that persecution. So just as an application, as an aside, we ought to expect persecution. And we ought to endure persecution because we are the freeborn child. Why is it that Christians are hated? Well, it's because Christ is hated, but it's also because we have a privileged position before God because of what He's done. We are His children 
because we received the promise. We're His children because of what Christ has accomplished. And we're not, we're not running on the treadmill trying to, 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 to please our God, trying to make it so that our God will finally smile upon us or finally make it so that we can call Him our God or something like that. No, we become His children. He becomes our God when we receive the promise. And that's hateful. That was hateful to the child of the slave woman. And that's hateful to the world around us. So let's, let's expect and endure persecution and endure with pity since the persecutor who continues in that path will be cast out. Look at verse 30. What does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. The son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. In his day, he's talking about these Judaizers who are pursuing this route, that they are, they are bringing in additional things. Yeah, Christ is good. He's the Messiah. And here's how, here's how you make him your Messiah. Here's how you have right uh, access to God is that you undertake circumcision. You undergo these things and you take on the law. Paul is saying, no, that way leads to destruction. You'll be cast out like Ishmael was cast out. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. He wants these Christians, and we want ourselves to know the truth, the freedom that we have in Christ. How is it that we get to be counted as God's children? It's by promise, by receiving that promise. And so he says in Chapter 5, verse 1, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Stand firm in that freedom. Now, he's going to go on. He's going to talk later on about the fact that don't, don't use this freedom as a, as a means of, of, of pursuing uh, fleshly desires and sin. That's not what he's talking about. I'm a Christian, therefore I can do whatever I want because I'm free. No, you're a Christian, therefore you have free access to God by faith. That's what freedom in Christ is. We didn't have to go... Uh, through a detour. We didn't have to go through some secret uh, place or, or know the secret handshake or, or do the right things or take on circumcision or any of that stuff. We are like the freeborn child, born of promise. And he says, stand firm in that. And that's our application. Stand firm in that. Don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. Don't allow a single thought to enter your mind that would say that we have to accomplish something in order to receive God's favor. I need Jesus plus. No, you need Jesus, period. One of the reasons we meet together every Sunday and open God's Word together and talk through what the gospel is and remind ourselves is because we are prone to forget. It doesn't even take me the whole seven days to the next Sunday to forget. I need to be reminded. Every, every person is that way. Every, every person, every human is born with the notion that we need to merit. I need to receive that gift because I am special. Because I did the thing. Because I accomplished the work. Me, me, me. And because I'm who I am, I should receive that. Yeah, I might call it a gift, but really it's payment, isn't it? The one who works and he gets paid, it's, it's his salary. It's his wage. It's not a gift. That's the way the natural man thinks. And so we have to be reminded again and again and again of the truth that we get to be God's children because he promised it to be so. 
we received the promise and we know there's nothing special. I didn't do anything. There's nothing unique and special about me. I didn't accomplish anything. I haven't gone through any list. I haven't climbed any ladder. I haven't, haven't done the appropriate things like the Judaizers were talking about in order to be a child of God. I didn't do Jesus plus something. I looked to Jesus alone. And thus I made his child. And he's going to go on and talk about the fact that, yeah, this has implications for the way we relate to God and the way we relate to one another because we have been received as his children, not in order that we might become acceptable to him, but because we have already been made so. And so we preach God's word weekly and we come and celebrate the Lord's Supper. And if I could have the men who are going to serve come forward, please. So as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, there are these elements that are going to go by. And these elements represent the body and the blood of Christ. These elements represent what we've just been talking about, that as Christians, we need to be reminded, we need to remind one another of the fact that Jesus paid it all. He accomplished the work in the giving of his body, the spilling of his blood, and that is ours by faith. And so as we celebrate these elements as they go by, we're going to be, uh, we're going to be talking about the gospel. We're going to be reflecting on the, this Christ that we have trusted in and by whom we have acceptance with God. And if, if you don't know Christ, let these elements pass, pass and think about what we've talked about. There are, there are two ways. There, there, are, there are two mothers. There are two covenants. There are two Jerusalems. And there are two ends. And one is the things that I'm going to accomplish. Whatever they might be, they might be small, they might be huge. But if you're going to rely upon your own accomplishment, your own merit, if you're going to rely upon your own record, that way lies destruction. The Christian has realized, I don't have anything to offer. I could never have anything to offer. I could never meet God's demands. But I have Jesus who met all of God's demands, who bore in himself the penalty for my sin that I deserve to go pay. He bore it for me. I get to be his child because of the body and the blood of Christ. First, we take up the bread. The elements are going to be passed in just a moment, and as each one is passed, we have opportunity to spend some time in silent prayer. It takes a couple of minutes for, uh, for the elements to be passed. Take advantage of that opportunity, because we've been talking about uh, that fact that Christ has met the standard, and in doing so, we're reminded of the fact that we have not. I have not met the standard, God's requirements. I have not uh, lived without sin this week, this month. I have sinned to confess, and so I, I, I bring that sin out, and I, and, I, and I lay it before God in prayer. Not so I can agonize over it, not so I can punish myself over it, not so that I can do something to make up for that sin. I simply bring it out, and I confess it to Jesus, and I ask for forgiveness. And do you know what he does? He forgives me. And so as the bread is being passed, take that moment and, and confess your sin and bring it out, and don't, 
don't, don't, don't spare that time. Don't skip over that time, but take the, the sin you walked in here with, the thing that was on your mind, the thing that was on your heart, the thing that was bothering you and keeping you up at night or that you did your best to ignore. Lay it before God. Confess it as sin and that you can't undo that. You've already committed it. And look to Christ and you will find forgiveness in Him. Paul says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when He was betrayed took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Father, we are grateful that we have this reminder of the body of Christ given for us, broken for us to pay that penalty for us, for our sin. And Father, in these next few moments as we, as we consider and think about our own sin, we don't, we don't do so so we can wallow in it. We do so so we can leave it with you. So bless us, help us, even as we anticipate partaking in just a moment of the body of Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Jesus said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Next, we come to the cup. As we pass the cup around, take some time and, and ponder and rejoice the fact that, that Jesus is a better Savior than you are a sinner, and that the sin that you brought in here today has been laid upon him and dealt with, and it is not yours anymore. And so you can rejoice, and you can celebrate what we have in the, the body and the blood of Christ Jesus said, in the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Father, we rejoice in the new covenant that Jesus has established, where he has taken upon himself the guilt of his people. He has taken upon himself the responsibility to fulfill your law on their behalf because they never would that He has taken upon Himself to give us new hearts by Your Spirit. And He has placed Your Spirit within us. We have a great new covenant. And we rejoice, and it's ours by the blood of Christ. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Jesus said, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. If you have rested in Christ from your own works and put your faith in him, you've come here today in a spirit of repentance, and by the virtue of his death and his resurrection, I can say to you that your sins are forgiven, and you don't carry that anymore. Praise God. I'm going to pray for us in just a moment, but I often forget, and so I'm trying to remember this time, that this is the Sunday of the month where we take the benevolence offering. You can put that in the box in the back or in the tray in the foyer. And uh, we use that to, uh, to help people who are in financial need, um, usually within the body, sometimes without. And even this week, we had, we had someone come into the office and, and needed some gas money, and so we did that. And it gave us the opportunity to share the gospel. And so we got to sit there and, and share the gospel with her. And, and, uh, and so it, it provides opportunity. So that's made possible by your generous giving. So I forgot to say that last month. And so if you've been carrying around that benevolence giving all month and you haven't spent it on pizza or something, you can drop it in the box today. And I would encourage you also about uh, the service tonight at 6 o'clock. We're going to hear from, from Andy again, and uh, that'll be a great time. I encourage you to be here for that. Let me, let me uh, close this in prayer. Father, we are grateful for the truths that we've talked about today, that we have not been left in slavery, though we were born into it. We have not been left to accomplish our own purposes, though we have that bent in our heart, that we, uh, we often think we need to climb that ladder. We need to accomplish that thing. We need to uh, do something to gain your smile, to gain your favor, to be able to be called your children. And we look to Christ and we find that He has accomplished all of those things on our behalf. And they are ours by believing the promise that they are ours. Father, we are grateful for Jesus, our Savior. May He bless us as we go. May Your Spirit work in our hearts and our conversation. And may You be honored in our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you all, and you're dismissed.